Light has been brought, and his name is Cassius Bologna. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hail Reaper. My name is Philip, and this is my good friend Jeremy. Is Cassius the true Lightbringer? He is. Oh man, he took it. Solinius is going to be so disappointed in Lysander. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't deserve. You can't nickname yourself. It doesn't no. work. No. You can't name a ship and be like, "Yeah, I'm the Lightbringer now." So he approves it. <laughs> yeah. So, no, Cassius stole the mantle. He is the Lightbringer. He brought the light to the story. This is our Lightbringer reaction series wrap-up. We did five episodes before this, just talking about the individual parts of Lightbringer. And now we're here to wrap up the book. So if you're jumping in right now, just know you can go back and listen to five episodes before this, and we'll talk in depth about each phase of the book. But here we are talking about the entire scope of Lightbringer. That's right. You have five episodes over four parts because we wanted to convolute things, complicate it as much as we could and make a part three B, which is actually part four of our series, <laughs> referencing part three of the book. Don't, no, but, yeah. just stop, just stop. You're confusing no. everyone. Um, just well, listen to them all. Yeah, I want to thank everyone <laughs> for being our reading buddies. We've had so many positive and amazing interactions with fans, whether that's on Instagram DMs, our Gmail inbox, comments on our YouTube page. I just really, I feel really appreciative to be part of the community. And that's why we wanted to do this series in the way that we did it, kind of delaying that gratification, reading just a piece of the book, recording an episode, reading a piece of the book again, recording episode, and people just being able to jump in and take part of that conversation with us, sharing their theories, their thoughts, how wrong we were, how right we were. <laughs> it was just fun to be uh, heavily interactive with the fan community. Yeah, and speaking of how wrong you are, uh, I think outside of your incredibly garbage Severo take <laughs> that deserved all the heat, I don't think we got any hate mail at all. That was the only like hate, quote unquote hate mail we got <laughs> was my Severo take from that third episode. People just could not stand that. Got so much interaction from that. We had a lot of overlap, but I think when people agreed with both of us, they were right as well. And then whenever our, our opinions differed, I'm sure they chose to follow me on my opinions about the book. Are you the winner? I, I'm i going to self-proclaim myself the winner. <laughs> but remember, you can't nickname yourself or proclaim yourself yeah, the winner. I'm feeling a little Lysander in that, <laughs> can't do that. In that decision. So well, let's leave it up to the listeners. Listeners can decide who had the better takes throughout the series, whether it was me or Jeremy. I want to give a couple quick shout outs to a few listeners that have been really heavily interacting with us online. A shout out to Michael L, shout out to Jared O, and shout out to Covert, which is the howler name they've been given. So shout out to you guys. Yeah, thanks everyone for your support. 
Um, and obviously, like we say many times, you know, the show doesn't happen without you. Uh, it is funded by you. It is for you. Everything we do is for the community. So you guys rock. Thank you so much. Let's come back into spoiler mode and talk about Lightbringer. I want to take a moment and tell you about our new sponsor, Neuro. Neuro makes great tasting gum and mints that don't just freshen your breath, but they give you a boost of energy or a relaxing calm. My favorite is the Honey Lemon Calm and Clarity. These have been super good as after dinner mints because they satisfy my sweet tooth, but they also have vitamin D3, GABA, and L-theanine, which help you de-stress and relax. All Neuro mints and gum are vegan, sugar-free, aspartame-free, and gluten-free. And right now, when you order from their website, getneuro.com, you can get 15% off your next order with our promo code, Hail Reaper Pod. So go get some today. You will not regret it. That's getneuro.com, G-E-T-N-E-U-R-O, and use our promo code at checkout for 15% off Hail Reaper Pod. Jeremy, we are back from break, and each week you've been giving us the chapter breakdown of Lightbringer. But you know what? We have no chapters to read anymore. So we're going to be doing something different. Let's do our book rankings. We have not done this in a long time on the podcast and given our thoughts on how we see the order of the books. I want to qualify this. We love every one of these books. They're all amazing, but we do have our favorites. So we're going to go ahead and give our order of our least favorite book to our favorite, even though they're all A pluses in our mind. Okay. So Jeremy, what's your number six? That's right. Operative word, favorite, even though least comes before it, there's still favorite in there. Exactly. All right. Number six, OG Red Rising. Number five, this one's contentious. I I might end up with a little hate mail on this one (laughs) uh, because people love this book. Dark Age Mm -hmm. uh, goes to number five. In number four, we're going to go ahead and throw a little Golden Sun action in there. Mm Mm-hmm. And then in real time, I'm struggling with this a little bit, but I think my number three spot needs to go to Lightbringer. And I'm going to put an asterisk by that as well. We'll talk about it in a second. That leaves number two with uh, Morningstar. And in number one, it's always been there. It is the best book anyway. It is Iron Gold. Vuvuzela? Yeah. So, All right, we're at the World Cup. Let's go. <laughs> let's go. Um, anyway, I want to do mine, and then let's talk about it. All right. Number six, Dark Age. <laughs> oh, you even gave it... Oh, man, you downgraded it from mine. When we talked to Pierce, when we had we had him on in June, but we, we hung out with him in LA, but we released the episode in early July, he even said, Dark Age is supposed to alienate you. And that's exactly how I feel when I read it. It's hard. It's a hard read. The protagonists lose every single chance they get and it's just crushing it's not that i don't enjoy reading it i think it's actually a phenomenal book in terms of just the writing the prose i love how it's very transportive as well but it's a really hard book to read number five is red rising even though it's at number five it's still such a fun book it's so endearing it takes you back as well to those first moments when you read, I, I have that nostalgic feeling every time I open it up. I really enjoy the book, but it's number five. Number four is Golden Sun. Number three, my former number one, Morningstar. Oh, man. Number two, Lightbringer. Oh. And, and number one. That means 
Iron gold. <laughs> I've convinced you or something. You have convinced me. I think I've convinced myself as well. I can speak for both of us a little bit, but I want you to jump in. The reason you and I love iron gold so much, we did a five episode series about this. It pushes you. It asks a lot of you. It tells you that the things that happened in the first trilogy aren't in fact things to always celebrate. They get thrown back in your face and pushed upon you and saying, how do you feel about the docks now? How do you feel about this idea of liberty now? And Pierce is trying to challenge the reader, trying to make you wrestle with the themes that he keeps bringing up through the course of Iron Gold. And I really like being pushed. I really like the exploratory nature that he's going on, whether it's in POV, whether it's in questioning and challenging Darrow as righteous or not, uh, whether it's going into new parts of the world. There's always a challenge being issued by Pierce and Iron Gold. And I've grown to just absolutely love it. I love the struggle. I love the nuance. And that is really, for the reasons you said, what that book brings to us. Like you talked about getting questions shoved in your face. I like having to wrestle with the idea of is liberty worth it? Because it's really easy for you and I just to be you know, walking down the sidewalk with an ice cream cone in our hands. <laughs> wow, and, nice. And just Chocolate. saying, I have mint chip. Okay, cool. And it's just like, hey, do you like liberty, Philip? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's, that's an easy answer. But it's when life, it's when historical events that are cyclical and they've happened, they're happening and they will happen again. And even in this fictitious world, it's dealing with the reality of, of our world. And when those harsh realities, when those atrocities are presented to you almost in the face of liberty, saying that these are costs mm -hmm. that society, I'd keep doing this, lowercase s, <laughs> must bear in order to eliminate these things like hierarchy, slavery, oppression. And when you're faced with, is it worth it in this realm with these circumstances, it's a lot harder question to answer. Now, you and I, if you listen back to our Iron Gold content, obviously landed on the side of yes. Always say yes. It's 100% worth it. But it, it makes it a lot harder to answer. It makes it a struggle. And mm -hmm. I, I, that's what I love about that book so much. Iron Gold, uh, the first two reads, I just didn't enjoy it. I think I sided with a lot of readers rating it as one of their lowest books. But I think the more you read it, the more you see... Pierce's appreciation for history, one. I also think the more that you see the beauty of his writing and his prose in that book, that book is, I think really, other than Lightbringer, the only book at the time that doesn't revolve around absolute war. They talk about war a lot, but in a more nuanced way, but there's not necessarily war in it. There's a few battles, but it's not a book of war. It's a book of questions. It's a book of answers. Uh, it's a book of rather trying to find the answers. And I think that Lightbringer, and the reason I put it number two, is I think it's the perfect call and response to Iron Gold. I like that there's a lot of loops being closed inside of Lightbringer from Iron Gold. I think we took a pit stop with Dark Age. We had to go back into the war. We needed some resolutions there. We needed to find some things. We needed to have a reason for Darrow to grow and to ascend. But what he's faced with in Lightbringer is a lot of the things that were initially pried open in Iron Gold. Yeah, and it's that extension that I appreciate so much. 
and I told you the asterisk. This is where I'm going to come back to it. <laughs> is I have it in my number three. I predict that as I reread this, as I get through read two, read three, that this will become my number two. Mm-hmm. Now, I can probably safely say that I don't think it'll reach number one because I like the questions more than some the, of the answers, the answers that this yeah, gives us. I get that. But the pairing of the two is wonderful. And I just don't want to do something knee-jerk and just like throw it up at the top and be like, oh, I just read this. I'm emotional about it. Like, I love it, you know, and just yeah. make it that. So I, I want to play it safe, be a little conservative here. And I want to put it in number three with the expectation that it's actually going to move yeah. up to number two. No recency bias from you. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's what I'm trying to avoid. I, I'm, I'm ready to go full into recency bias. <laughs> yeah, for I'm sure. good. Um, but I, I actually genuinely think it's number two because I love Morningstar so much, but I've really had to kind of think about the whole series in totality a lot by finishing Lightbringer and kind of what I think Red God is building to. And I just like that, I guess, you know, second series identity so much more because I like being in the flow of my day and my head just automatically drifting to something inside of Iron Gold or Lightbringer, a, a question like that, like what, what would it look like if this, or was it really worth it to do this? Or I can't believe that Darrow had to do this. Just all those like, kind of questions that the book proposes, those two books rather propose are so fascinating to me. In Morningstar, that book is beautiful. The identity of that book is beauty to me, but I'm not really being pushed mm-hmm. a lot of, and a lot of times when I read it, I'm not being asked to examine something. I think that in Morningstar, the docs again, I mean, happen, but in Lightbringer, they're, they're still being talked about a lot in this book. They come up with, uh, in the Moon Lords Council, they come up with the trial that Darrow's goes on. It, it, it's a reoccurring theme in Lightbringer is the docks of Ganymede. And I like looking at it from that angle rather than just going, cool, I can do this right now and I can win the next war. I can make a rational transaction. And it's over with almost instantly. It's just part of a chapter in Morningstar. But in Iron Gold, and especially in Lightbringer, it's a plot point that is everlasting. There's nothing wrong with closing your book when you're done with it and just having a smile on your face and even going down the road and having nostalgic feelings about it and going, I like that book. I'd like to read it. I love Morningstar. But for me personally as a reader, those events like you talked about, the fact that I lay in bed at night wrestling with a novel, wrestling with themes from that novel as I fall asleep, that's the game that I want to play. That's where I want to be with my headspace when I read. Mm-hmm. I think that sharpens us. I think that as humans, I think that Pierce in the second series is asking more of us. He's asking us to examine, asking us to think, asking us to go, was Daryl right? Asking us to even think now, was Lysander right? And I know a lot of people are like, yeah, yeah <laughs> no. <laughs> but there's parts of this book that you can point to and say, maybe he was right at the beginning. Oh, yeah. yeah, And you can be lulled into that. I mean, just looking at the end of the book, looking at what Lysander did at the end, we all have the same answer. I get that. But if you look at the beginning, you can't just dismiss the beginning. You can't dismiss who the character was. That's the kind of the game that he plays with you, that Pierce plays with you in this book. And we said this before, he's not in the right spot, 
but he's certainly walking in the right direction at the beginning of the book. He's talking about things and he's on comparative ground to the Telemannus family when we first meet them. Yeah. Like there's really no difference in between their two philosophies. And so you end up wanting this character to continue down the right path, to grow into this person you want him to be and become the Darrow because that's essentially where the big five outside of Darrow himself coming from the mines were really at, you know, they, they came to that fork in the road and they had to make a decision. The big five being Cassius, Severo, Mustang, Victra, and Darrow. Yeah. Yeah. And they chose the right way. They all went against the grain and they chose the right way. Yeah. But they were once in the grain. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, we, we continuously forget about that with every single character here. So it's very easy for me to look back at, at Lysander and go, no, I'm not satisfied with where you are. I don't think you're right. But what you give me is enough to hope that you could be in the future. Cassius has a quote. I didn't actually intend to bring this up at all, but I had it highlighted in my book and I'm going to get it right now. Cassius has a quote in chapter four of Lightbringer. He says this, the raw truth is I liked wealth. I liked my pinks. I liked being on top, a bologna. I felt the wrongness of it, but I excused it, said it was the way of the worlds, pretended I wasn't the boot on the throat of the reds or the pinks. I made myself believe my honor was made an exception. One of the good tyrants. Honor was made to hide behind, I think, like a crown or an Olympic cape. He grimaces. I know now I was only a more tolerable source of misery. If I'm honest, that's why I spent 10 years around the asteroids with Lysander, doing small good where I could. Lysander wants to be not a more tolerable, the most tolerable. Tyrant. Yeah. <laughs> Tyrant. Mm -hmm. That's really his aspiration. Yes. I mean, even at the end of the book, I think that's probably still his aspiration. I want to talk about Lysander at the end of the book. There's a moment, this is in his last chapter, that's Sack of the Garter, as we're talking about. He says this to Pallas, or rather Pallas prompts him, which is a client of House Bologna. She's a character that kind of irregularly pops up throughout the book. And I want to read this little section here. I apologize. After your games on Mercury, I told Lady Bologna, you didn't have the stomach for this sort of enterprise. Lysander responds, I didn't yet. What changed, she asked. I was taught how the world worked, I say. If you don't have the stomach to win, there's plenty of people who do and will. I remember reading this for the first time because I read it, I went back and kind of revisited it again. And I just was really dissatisfied by that. I just felt like that wasn't enough. I thought that Pierce Brown was going to bring some epic heat. Because I remember when, <laughs> I remember like looking kind of, you know, glancing down the page a little bit, thinking like, oh, here we go. Like Pierce is going to drop this epic, these epic bars about how sick of a character this is becoming. Like sick meaning like how sick he's become in the sense that he's the big bad. He's the true now pure antagonist. And he kind of just sidesteps it all. Kind of just like, hey, I'm just showing how the world's worked. And I initially was just so disappointed by the, the subtlety of it. How did you feel about that? It seems consistent with how I view Lysander. We talked a lot about Lysander in the last episode, obviously. Yeah. Um, with some emotionality around it. But I don't think he's a sociopath. I, I think that he is dealing with a lot of, even maybe not 
dealing directly with it, but indirectly like this psychological trauma or, or avoiding it maybe is the better way to say mm-hmm. that right now. Um, cause he seems pretty successful up to now, uh, the end of the book with being able to avoid that. But I do think that he is haunted, um, by his actions. I do think that he is haunted by the death of Cassius. I think there's enough language there to support he's making the wrong decision and he knows it. But the language I used last episode was in fact that he made a deal with the devil. Mm-hmm. And this seems to me to just go right in line with with a suppression. It's like, I'm not going to go on and monologue for 10 days about the evils of what I just did. Um, Justify it. Like maybe Darrow would or something like that in prior books. Yeah, because I don't think there is justification, not even in his mind for what he did. Hmm. And I don't think he would try to justify it. I think he wants to ignore it instead. I think that's a great answer. Uh, I didn't think about it that way. Well, I went searching. I was just like, this isn't good enough. Like I need more from this. I need a reason why he would just be like, I was shown how the world's worked. Good to go. See you later. Bye palace. <laughs> Meet in Mercury. Um, but I went digging in the book and the chapter that I fell on that I felt like gave me reasons to believe that he's thinking like this now. I believe it's chapter 15. I could be wrong, but the chapter is called earth. And this is the first time we meet Atalantia in the story of Lightbringer. And I thought this is a phenomenal chapter when I read it first. Uh, also a really hard one because this is the Glorastes Bowl chapter. If oh, you remember geez. that. Yeah. But it has some great quotes from Atalantia. And there's two I'm going to read back to back. Lysander, really? What good are allies if you don't use them to make you stronger? And then here we go again. Listen, Lysander, I know you. You are too gentle for this game. This game was meant for people like me. I will win it. Not because I can do everything, but because I will do anything. It's easy for me. Natural. Those two quotes, I feel like were lessons for him, that he was learning, that he was putting in the back of his mind, because character is really smart. Character kind of, I think, is a, a sponge. He's very, he absorbs a lot of what people say, whether that can be Atalantia or Virginia or lots of people. And I think that he took those quotes, like the idea of what are what good are allies if you don't use them to make you stronger. Look what he did to Cassius. Oh, yeah. Look what he did to Pytha. And I think the idea of him not having the stomach for it, him not, what she says here, like, I'll do anything. I'm, I'm not stopping. This is, I will win this game. And he had to realize that that's who he had to become. But I don't know if that's even him. I think it might be just a part of him, uh, kind of almost like a, a weird game that he's playing. I'm not sure yet. I, I know what you said. You said just a moment ago that you really feel like he, he can't face that. Like he has to, he has to give a short kind of almost curt response because if he actually tries to bring justification to it, then it will fall apart even in his own hands. But here, I think he's just enacting a lesson that he's learned. It's natural to Atalantia. That's what she, she says. she actually is a sociopath. <laughs> I mean, that's how Pierce wrote her. Yeah. She is pure evil. Mm-hmm. And she's a tool yeah. <laughs> in, in, that, in that. You're a, a tool, dude. <laughs> in that she's a device in the book to represent that pure evil. Mm-hmm. And, and so she really is that sociopath. I think on the flip side, this is unnatural to Lysander. Mm. Now, I agree with you. I think these are lessons, and I think he embraces it. Um, you know, we talked to Pierce about the mind's eye. And what is it really? Because when it first popped up, 
I think there were a lot of associations with the force. Yeah. And some sort of magical power. And, and Pierce said, you know, and that's not really what it is at all. It's kind of a, a hyper meditative state, the ability to focus. And you see some of those magicians who submerge themselves in a freezing water for a time. Uh, I thought you were going to like pull on a rabbit out of someone's like hat or something. I was like, wow, magician? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> no. And they're able to alter their metabolic state using their mind. And that's kind of what we're talking about when we, when we speak of the mind's eye. It would not be anywhere out of the question for him to be able to shut off empathy, mm -hmm. to turn a part of his brain off and a part of his emotional state off in order to make things happen. And in this case, he would have to because of what he's doing and he's being a traitor to those who love yeah. him and causing the death of a beloved character. But all for what is the power, is the authority. Mm -hmm. I think the character is essentially, honestly, seriously, like has dissociative identity disorder. Mm. Like I, I think that he has cut a part of himself out or off with the mind's eye. And I think this is not the first time this has happened to him. I think this is something he's doing for himself, but I think that there's another part of his brain that we don't know about. We still don't have answers. And we saw it in Iron Gold. He, he sits down and Gaia's like, can you play the piano? And he's like, nope, can't play the piano. And what does he do right away? Starts playing a beautiful song. And she's like, I thought you didn't know how to play. He's like, I don't. <laughs> um, he can't remember that. He can't remember. He's trying so hard in, it, in both Iron Gold and Dark Age to picture his parents' faces. Can't remember what their faces look like. This character is incredibly intelligent and has a memory like a vault but not with certain things. I think that there's a lot to learn about Lysander still. I think Red God is going to bring that about. And I think that we'll have answers for the true, even the motive for all this, the sacking of the garter, the killing of Cassius. I think that last week I came to that episode with a lot of fire in my belly. I was mad. I, was, I think I represented a lot of readers in that way. I don't think I was as fair I don't think he deserves fairness either, but I don't think I was even fair in just the, in the, my measure, I should say. As I take a step back, as I allow myself a week to cool down, I have no idea what to expect from the character, but I'm hoping even still now for redemption. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are shouting right at me right now <laughs> saying, what the hell are you talking about? Why would you want that? I don't have a conviction in it, but I'm hopeful still. And... I think there's parts of this character that have still yet to be revealed to us. And so who knows? I don't know. We'll find out. If the guillotine came for Lysander right now, it would be deserved, in my opinion. Easily. But I still hold out the hope. Mm -hmm. I, I, still, I still look at the character in that light of where he is on the path. And, and he's not... He's far, far from the device that Atalantia is. Mm -hmm. Far from the device that um, Adrius is. Like, he is written with complexity. Way more complexity than those characters. And humanity. So in that, I'll admittedly say it's highly unlikely. Speculatively, it's seeming to move in the direction that... Pierce will play with that nuance, that he will, in fact, 
elevate Lysander to be the main antagonist in Red God. But that doesn't mean that I still am not going to try to hold out hope. When you're, it's fourth quarter in a, in a American football game and you're on, you know, the opponent's three yard line and the clock's out. Like you don't kneel and run out the clock and end the game when you're losing. Yeah. <laughs> you throw a Hail Mary. Mm-hmm. You try. And even though the odds are against you, you take the shot. And so I'd be remiss to say that, that I don't still have an ounce of hope left for Lysander. Yeah. You're taking your shot. Um, I feel like the way you feel, I kind of, I don't know where you'd fit in. We talked about that last week. Like, where does he fit in yeah. into like the rising or the Republic? I don't know, but Pierce is, he just writes so well and he can make things work. Um, there's something we'll talk about later that wasn't talked about in this book. It's Luna and what's going on on Luna. And could Lysander help with whatever is going on there? But I want to save that. That's a little tease. I want to save that for later. Um, let's talk about Daryl and just kind of his you know, path but in this book and what that looked like for you. Well, you brought it up. You said the path. <laughs> and my big takeaway for Darrow in Lightbringer is it seems very evident for me that Darrow doesn't have to die. <laughs> Yeah. And and I'll qualify that. My opinion is probably more known to like our Patreon Discord community where we've talked about predictions and such. And given just the nefarious nature, the villainous nature of Darrow throughout the second series and the path that he was on seemed very destructive, took its toll even on the personal life. So he was a, a warmongering crazy person that, you know, was, was outside the lines of the law, was going to be arrested if he stepped foot uh, back on the home planet. And simultaneously, he was a derelict father and husband. It seemed that the end that might have been best fitting for Darrow on the path that he was on was a glorious and beautiful death. And I think Pierce could have written that very well. Uh, did I want that for our boy? No. Mm-hmm. But do I think that with how self-destructive and generally destructive he was in his character, would anything else have been realistic? No, I don't. <laughs> but the one thing I wasn't counting on was that Darrow found religion. Yeah. He found the path to the veil. And it's really this full circle notion from the beginning when he was back in the mines on Mars. Uh, talking about the old man, the veil, the dew on his cap. Yeah. And it was a very vague references, almost like this general theism that he held back then. And it's really being refined, the actual text, uh, creedal in nature almost, and Ori and, and how she's influencing his thoughts and feelings toward this has really brought about his reformation, his redemption, right back into the old Darrow that we used to love from the first series. Mm -hmm. I think the best part about Darrow's journey is just this, is the identity crisis is over. He had, he basically since Red Rising, when he was at the Institute, he had that, he was just kind of, who am I? Like, what am I? Why am I here? How can I do this? 
can I do this? Like all these questions that he keeps asking himself and they get more complicated throughout his journey. He becomes a dad. Can I do this and still be a dad? Can I uh, be to steal this and be a husband? All those questions. And, and it goes back to that prologue of Iron Gold that we spent a lot of time talking about and, and Dark Age as well. And the identity crisis is over. He knows who he is. He knows the, how to take responsibilities for his actions now. He has something to turn to and look to as a guiding light where before he was just asking himself and now he has something to like, I mean, I guess to be to use a religious term, a <laughs> higher power to like look up to and go, that's what I'm chasing. That's what I'm going for. And he is a breaker. And now we know that's okay. Mm-hmm. It was told to us, we, you, you and I actually had this opinion for a long time. And a lot of people disagree with us. Like, oh, he can be a builder. I'm like, but that's not his design. And Severo says it in this book. He says that Ares or, you know, his dad chose you to be the breaker. He chose Athena and Dancer to be the builders. But you need all those different archetypes to create something bigger than just one person. It's okay to be a breaker. It's actually good to be a breaker in this case. And he is that. Uh, I really loved his journey. I loved growing with him. I loved learning more about him, what he could be. I think a lot of ways Daryl can be very singular. And now I don't think that anymore. And I'm happy I don't have to think that. I'm happy that I was shown that the character can grow and evolve in ways that I didn't imagine going to this book. Like you said, you didn't think him, he was going to find religion. And lo and behold, what did that do for the character? Finding religion taught him so much about his friends. It taught him a new blade form. It taught him to accept responsibility. It taught him to face his fears. It taught him a lot, man. Like This character is so much better now at the end of Lightbringer than I could have imagined him being. I... I always love Daryl. Daryl and Cassius are my guys. This is, these are my ride or die guys. And by the end of the book, I feel so awesome about both of them. I know that one is no longer with us, but I still hold like, man, they couldn't be better now. Like they can't. Like I know that we have one more book to go with, with Daryl, <laughs> but I feel so good about where they're at. Yeah. I mean, Cassius is locked in. So that's good. Done. He's, he's cemented as like one and, of the greatest. And we have a very good outlook on Daryl now. But yeah, this, the, the path, this philosophy of the path has seemingly given Darrow, who's the driven arrow, who's the breaker, um, the ability to delineate these parts of himself and allowed him to, because I think he seems to have like tied his, his righteousness to these attributes. So if he is the driven arrow, if he is the breaker, Therefore, he is unrighteous. Therefore, he, mm-hmm. he can't contain these attributes. It led to a lot of depression. It led to a lot of identity crisis. And what the path brought him seems to be this ability to live in that and be at peace with being a righteous breaker, yeah. <laughs> with an honorable breaker. Mm-hmm. I think the light of that has been huge and is the probably the one thing that will allow him internally to reconcile um, even his own life, even his relationship with, with, uh, with Mustang and with mm-hmm. Pax and say, yes, out of necessity, out of righteousness, I do all these things. That's not who I am. I can, I can separate those things now. I love how Darrow 
has come along and how he looks at his friendships and looks at his relationships now. We saw that beautiful interaction. I can't remember the chapter, but they were in the cockpit of the Archimedes and Darrow and Cassius just shared that wonderful moment about really becoming brothers, what that really meant to both of them. And Darrow cried. It was really touching. Severo and how they, when they re-met, how they embraced and how they talked about Cassius, but also how they talked to each other. How Darrow relates to Ari, Ori. <laughs> um, everyone, everyone around him, he just has a different feel with them now. And I cannot wait to see how that interaction transfers over to Victra, to Mustang, and especially to Pax. I think I'm, now that I got the reunion that I wanted, I wanted to see, I told that last episode that I was really eager to see Lysander and Cassius reunite and see what that would have looked like. And we got that in chapter 83 of Lightbringer. But now I'm really looking forward to an interaction from Pax and Daryl. And as a, a boy dad, that I can't think of anything I'm looking forward to more. I'm really excited for that. That reunion is going to be epic. And I mean, looking ahead at our episode, I know there is not a best supporting actor award, mm -hmm. <laughs> but R.A., Easy, Joke, easy so win. <laughs> Lights it up. Lights it up, dude. So I'm kind of bummed about that. Maybe we can just invent one. We'll just do right now and just ship it. Best supporting character in the series, Ori. Yes, done, done. Okay, award shipped ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> let's um, let's get into our awards. Let's go ahead and take a break. Let's come back and do awards. Slavery is not peace. Freedom is peace. This is war. But you are on the side of good, and that carries a heavy bird. We rise not for hate, not for vengeance, but for justice. Jeremy, we're back from break. We're doing our awards for the entire book of Lightbringer. I know we've been doing these each episode, but only on those confined parts. Now we're doing the whole book. This is way harder because you have to take the entire scope. Okay, man, here we go. What's your favorite scene from Lightbringer? Pulling out his phone, hold on. No, 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 no. <laughs> Just for the chapter number. All right, yeah, okay. So Lysander POV, chapter 84, it is Hangar 17B. That is my- Favorite scene? That is my favorite scene. I, I think it goes back, I don't want to relitigate everything, but- That last episode, let's just, yeah, leave it as is, huh? Yeah, just, we can just listen to that section out of the last episode. I believe all of it. There were three main deaths and mm -hmm. the, the dance <laughs> that Pierce did with the pen- or the keyboard, however you want to look at it in modern <laughs> days. Epic. The ability to weight the deaths mm -hmm. with number of words, with word choice, um, with the way that... Uh, I, I love that we started talking about Moon Boy and Lysander, similar to how we talk about Eo and Persephone. Or Reaper and Darrow, yeah. or Goblin and Severo, yeah. We start having... Throw in more dualities. Just keep them going, Pierce. Yeah. And 
we saw this separation and the death of Moon Boy. We saw Atlas, just a, a total beast of a man. <laughs> Truly, yeah. Die in, in few words that, mm-hmm. that gave no real weight, no real gravitas to, to his character in a very fitting way. Mm. And then we have one of the most beautiful send-offs, probably the most beautiful send-off. Better than Ragnar in my mind. Yeah. I, it takes the cake. It does. Almost like in the movies where you see <laughs> the nostalgic, what do you call the, the film role in the background of all memories with the soft music going over it? A montage. There you go. It almost had a montage feel to it. It was so, it was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe that was just my mind doing a montage of Cassius. I felt like I had space to think. I had, I had space to feel and to really understand what it meant. And, and, it, and like I had said previously in the episode, I took such pride in the scene. Even facing death, he didn't care. It didn't matter to him. He says, I must. <laughs> There's, it's he was just, ready. Oh my gosh. What a hero. What a freaking hero. I think that word gets tossed around too much. Hero. And like what it means to be a hero. And it means to be willing to do whatever it takes for the betterment of everyone else, in my mind. And he does that. So that being your favorite scene, I, I understand it. I just wasn't expecting it. Uh, is the, that kind of, that whole chapter essentially, but that specific later in the chapter, that mm-hmm. whole scene. Um, my favorite scene. I, I, I wrestle with this a lot. I had three. And one of them actually was the one you picked. Okay. Um, the other one, real quick, honorable mention was Lysander's speech, the 200. Oh. Because it was the single best moment of Pierce Brown's writing career. <laughs> yes. Um, and it was just awesome. <laughs> but I would say uh, Deanna's speech, another speech in Lycos, chapter 19. The Rising Dirge is the name of the chapter. Her speech, it was shorter, a lot shorter than Lysander's. But the idea of her listing her lost in Lycos, being in Lycos when this happened. They hanged my husband here. They hanged my daughter here. They hanged my son here. Man, that just, that there's so much power to that scene, like real power. And I think it's that power of the path, the power of the veil that really comes out. People shouting Darrow's name as each person gets a moment where the whole you know, crowd of thousands gets to say their name that people shouting Daryl's name and just gets me choked up. But there's one moment that really, I'm just really drawn to, and I don't know if I can articulate it, but I'm going to try. When Deanna says they killed my daughter here and they all say EO, there's a moment where it's because it's from Virginia's POV. She's describing how everyone is saying those words or those names. And Victra says, Eo, like a prayer, that kind of religious reference again. But I can't help but think of the most badass warrior like ever. (laughs) (laughs) This huge person in giant, amazing green, has to be awesome looking green armor. Oh yeah. A war hawk. Just like, just, (laughs) I would, you can't mess with Victra, right? So powerful, beast mode, awesome, beautiful, every adjective you want to throw at her, you can't having all that reverence for a young red 16 year old 
and truly meaning it. Like that, I, I can't get over that. That blows me away. Like having this figure in her life that she never met, but is kind of like a God to her, to her of all people. I really love that moment. That, that little, almost like single tiny sentence. Just, it, it really gets me. Both or all three, if you want to take your honorable mention, um, wonderful scenes mm-hmm. that I can picture in, in my mind's eye so well that will play hopefully one day on the screen in some fashion. But Victra, yeah. I, I mean, I don't mean to be too tangential to your point, but such a cool character. And throughout this series, a fun character because she's so vested in the dream. She's so vested with her friends. And yet there's always those fun plays on kind of what her family owns and the wealth she still has. Yeah. And, and she has a, a, a little bit of a foot or a toe <laughs> in the other world. Yeah. But only to an extent that makes it fun. And yeah, Victor's a great character. Yeah. Phenomenal character. Uh, chosen family, uh, Victra. Like, I love that how she sees the world. She mm-hmm. chooses this family. It's not something she was born into. Like, Eo is not a natural family member to her, but I think she's making her a family member in a way. And I really like that about the character. Let's move on. Let's do, this is, this was the toughest one for me. What was your favorite quote in Lightbringer? This was so hard, but I have, I'm proud of my answer. I'm curious about yours. I'm going to do a repeat. It comes back to chapter 17, another Lysander POV. Okay. Uh, And this is the speech to the 200 in Mars Must Fall. Just to echo what you said, I literally have a note here that says Pierce's best writing ever. (laughs) (laughs) And I I truly believe it. You're not going to read any of it though, are you? No, I'm not going to be you. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to go reading for seven minutes wow. to the to the audience. Because <laughs> <laughs> you probably would. That's how long a speech is, like seven, eight minutes. Yeah, we would need two songs to underscore that. Yeah. Um, it, people can go back and read it. And it, it's the pinnacle of his writing so far. And the smile on his face when we share that with him. He was so told stoked. Us, told us everything because of the pride that he has in this writing as well. He, he really poured himself into that speech. And I, I think that's what one of the appreciations I have for the Lysander POV overall is Pierce's writing with Lysander and playing with this nuanced character that has pain in his past and reacts in strange, off-putting ways sometimes and walks the wrong path others. Some of his best material was right before Moonboy dies, like the whole section rather yeah. r- before Moonboy dies. Fascinating character study in Lysander and, and the apex, the peak of Lysander's entire POV is to me the speech of the 200. And by the way, last episode when you chose to read your favorite quote underscored with music, um, that was, you're right. That was not a quote. That was not a true quote. But this is, this literally is him monologuing for like seven freaking minutes. Yeah, but it's just, it's like an action scene at the same time. Yeah. So good. Gosh, <laughs> I need, I want to go, I want to get like a poster of the, all the whole thing just on my wall. Well, I'd be like mini posters, but. <laughs> you could do like, um, I don't know what they're called, but what are those posters where the words yeah. from afar look like a picture? Yeah, dude, that'd be sick. That'd be very cool. Yeah. Okay. Favorite quote, you ready? You have? Let's hear it. Cassius, don't, I warn. I must. I am Cassius Bologna, 
son of Tiberius, son of Julia, brother of Darrow, morning knight of the Solar Republic, and my honor remains. It's a good one. It's, it's actually not just a hype quote. Like, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic there. I mean, I just like saying it, but I read it twice last week. But the more I've actually sat with it in reality, it means a lot to me. Like, it's, I think a lot of people like the honor remains kind of thing and they just kind of attach themselves to it. But you go back to Iron Gold and that actually was said at the, at the bleeding place. But it was so different. And it had, I am Cassius Albalona, son of Tiberius, son of Julia, morning night, and my honor remains. But adding in the, oh, actually, let me go backwards. Taking away the owl, taking away the goldism of it is so powerful. Yeah. I I think that is truly very powerful. Basically just identifying as a person, not as a caste is amazing. But then the continued inclusion of his mother and father who would not agree with what he's doing here. And his mother who is not living for more as he is, but still has, I guess, to use his own word, to, use, to honor them. Mm-hmm. They made me, and they're still my parents, despite how my, my deceased father would not agree with this path, and my living mother does not agree with this path for me. But I'm still including, because he has reverence for them, and he still loves them. I think that's powerful. I think the inclusion of Brother of Darrow, that's the one that really punches you in the gut. And then morning night of the solar Republic, then you go, my honor remains. And it's true. Like his honor remained like all the way through. The character was radically consistent. That passage I read earlier in the episode, the, you know, the raw truth is I liked my wealth. I liked the pinks, but I liked being on top. I liked being a Bologna, but I felt the wrongness of it. It goes, you can go all the way back through the character. You really can. You can look at, you can scrutinize the things that he did in prior books where he even was a villain, where in Attica at the beginning of Morning Star, how Daryl comes up from the box and you see he's, he's naked and he's just malnourished and gross. What does Cassius do? Gives him his, his morning night cloak or cape and puts it over him to give him modesty and decency. Daryl refutes that. Darrow says, it's not true honor. It's just sanitary. I completely disagree with Darrow as an unreliable narrator there. I think that is incredibly in line with the character of Cassius. I think that's who he's always been. I think that he was always fighting what he wanted to be. He wanted to be Julian Mm -hmm. and what he was told to be by his, by his mother and father, who he still references here. Yeah. And he still has love towards, but he fundamentally disagrees with them. The quote is so much bigger than the quick, almost like meme-like nature of my honor remains. It is telling you everything you need to know about the character, how he sees the world, how he wants to be remembered, and who he truly holds in the highest esteem. Like he is just top level, top tier human, not top tier gold, not top tier, you know, character. Like, this is what I want to be like when I grow up. Like, like <laughs> I'm an almost 40-year-old man, and I want to be like this guy. 100%. I couldn't come up with a better thing to yell before running to my death. <laughs> yeah. Than those set of words. And I laugh, but I am sincere when I say that. 
I like that you pointed out the dropping of the owl. I did not catch that. And so I'm curious on the response from the listeners. I know you talked about that again last week. If they perceived that, I'm sure it was hit and miss. Beautiful, beautiful to, to voice that. And like you, like you had pointed out at the same time, Lysander continues to use Al. The parent thing, very wonderful. I think in, in a world where we're so quick to not give our parents due, to write them off as some old generation, some has-been generation that screwed us all up and didn't do anything right. Cassius seems to be an exception here, seems to hold a different belief, seems to think that everything along the way, the totality of his life and every impact that ever came to him, especially Julian, but certainly having to do with his mother and father, how he was raised, something in there, it's very unclear, but something in the math deep down worked out. Something clashed with another thing, creating a catalyst that, that started an explosion, a chain reaction that led to his understanding that all those things that he liked brought death. Mm. And I don't think he can place it, but I think he's not too naive to understand that only the entirety of his upbringing, the entirety of his past and everything within it could have resulted in where he is now. And I think a recognition of that through continuing to honor his, his mother and father despite that is a very big thing for him to do, especially like you'd pointed out that Julia would just green light his beheading if they caught him. <laughs> would, yeah. His decapitation, his, his death would be greenlit in a heartbeat because of his decisions. And yet he doesn't care. He knows that, but he's still like, Something within her and how she brought me up and, and where I went and everything led me to my place now where I'm including her in my war cry before I run it, you know. Sacrifice myself. Sacrifice myself. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you have another answer for favorite character? What's yours? Well, it's Cassius. Favorite character in Lightbringer is Cassius. It's not close. It's Cassius for me yeah. too. It's, uh, if I were to throw nominations out there, who it could be? It'd be Ori and Darrow. And if you consider the Path of the Veil a character, those are the only other nominations I can think of. But I would say that Cassius is far above all those. It's great that Cassius finally kind of got a book. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that there's a lot of Darrow going on here too. But ultimately, it feels like a very wonderful Cassius book. And culminates in his send-off. Yeah. So favorite character for both of us in Lightbringer is Cassius Bologna. Okay. We've got one more big award to do. What's your favorite POV inside of Lightbringer, Jeremy? This one's hard. Okay. I didn't struggle with this. So my answer, and it came quickly. I just don't want to take away from the, the fact that it's not that easy a choice. It was the Darrow POV. Yours is the Darrow POV? Mine is the Darrow POV. Okay, cool. Parts of me really want to answer the Lysander POV. But ultimately, uh, Darrow's path, and it, we talk about how, you know, he kind of opened the window 
to view these other characters in, in certain lights as well. And his window to to Cassius and his redemption arc, I think, are the two reasons why I went with Darrow over Lysander. I think Lysander POV is a masterclass in writing mm-hmm. <laughs> and is going to perplex me and until I get the next book and answers to my questions. But Darrow's POV held those two main components for me. A, a wonderful window to Cassius, you know, as as well as the redemption arc we needed uh, for our boy. I'm taking the zag. I, I'm going to go with Lysander. I completely I, respect that, I, obviously. I like, I like your response. I actually highly anticipated you to say Lysander. Mm-hmm. Mine is Lysander. And here's the thing. I know. I get it. <laughs> like, I get it, everyone. Like, this is not a popular pick. But the way I read these books might be different than the way you read them. And that's okay. I like the challenge, like we talked about with Iron Gold. I like being kind of pushed and prodded a little bit and having to examine. I, the, the narrative is wonderful and the narrative choice is easily Darrow's because of the beauty in it and because of the, the bigger, better window to Cassius and to Ori and to the path. I think your answer, I mean, if I'm really thinking about it, they're both just neck and neck, but yeah. I'm just going with the gut reaction. And here's here's what I see. I see like the speech of the 200. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. It's phenomenal. I see the war on Phobos. So I get to see interactions with Virginia and just kind of how that plays out. I get to see the aftermath of the war on Phobos and to see that moment that I love is that when they honor that red uh, Orlo the, yeah. of Gamma. I, I freaking think that is one of the better moments <laughs> in the book. Uh, I get to see the imposter. I, and, and, and his POV, Lysander. Like that, that is insanity. <laughs> like, right? That's an amazing chapter. I get to see Fa. I get to see his, his real self, that he's an aristocrat, like you said. And I get my <laughs> brain like literally doing cartwheels because of that. Yeah. I get to see the hangar fight with Cassius. I get the prior chapter, chapter 83 with Cassius as well, is also incredible and wonderful. And it makes Cassius shine brighter there too. And I finally get to see the attack on the garter. And whatever you think of that, I think it's absolutely despicable by myself. But I also think that it's intense and there's a lot going on there. Like to him to lie to the moon lords and to go, you know, boom. I know actually that's in Daryl's POV, excuse me. But just the aftermath of it and the sack of the garter. There's so much going on in Lysander's POV. So much big stuff. Whereas Darrow's is more quiet and subtle and beautiful, except for the clang, clang, clang. <laughs> um, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of beautiful things happening in his, but I think the bigger, more like wow moments are in Lysander's uh, POVs. Yeah, if I were just again a writing critic, Lysander's POV is better written. Hmm. Um, and it's not to say, okay, it's kind of like ranking the books. That, that is not to say that Darrow's is, is poorly written at all. It's just that the first place ribbon has to go on something and, and Lysander's POV is, is just better written. Yeah. But you would say the narrative, like you're saying though, the overarching themes and, and just the tug at your heartstrings and, and looping things in from the past. That's what made me edge out for Darrow. Neck and neck, but I'm just going to give it to Lysander on yeah, his POV good. being, I think, my favorite. I like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, wild card one. This is the last one. Wild card. Okay. 
What is one Lightbringer loose thread that you need answers on in Red God? One? Just one. Oh, man, I wrote two. Okay, well, give me your two. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll just break the rules. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I guess I have one kind of fun one. So we already mentioned the one that I had. I kind of let it out of the bag a little bit. It's, is Lysander the true antagonist of the whole series? Okay, that's a good one. Yeah, it just, again, goes right down to the hope. It goes right down to just wishing that he has some sort of redemption. I know highly unlikely, but I think it'll be interesting to play with that. We talked about this idea of instead of light versus dark and making it so cleanly divided, uh, Lysander can play the gray area, can play the nuance and light versus gray is a very interesting concept mm-hmm. um, that can smoke screen everybody. And I think add, add for a very complex and interesting story. So that's one that I need tied up. Okay. And the other, it's not a joke or anything like that, but it's just, did Pierce forget all about Abominadrius and Lilith? That's mine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In chapter 15, Earth, Atalantia's plan is not to invade Mars. It's to invade Luna in six months and have an iron reign. Why? What's going on on Luna? There's hints at it, like it's kind of going through some sort of, there's a, it's in a problematic state, but it's not being controlled by the Rising or the Republic. So who's controlling it? <laughs> I mean, I think we have our answer. I think it's probably Abominadrius. It's probably the syndicate and him kind of at the head of that uh, table. Right. And it needs to be taken back. It needs to be, the whole planet needs to be, or, you know, the moon needs to be won back. But that is the epicenter of this world. Like, if you go back to Golden Sun, this is the, you're on Luna every book. and Or it's being talked about heavily in every book except for this one. It's completely sidestepped. And I think that there's a couple other loose threads here that, why was several sold at auction when the Bomanadrius had him and told him, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to make, I'm going to torture you. But all of a sudden he was just conveniently sold at auction. Could it be that Mustang prompted him to maybe do something like that? Like be sold and instead of being killed, try to give him a chance. It plays right back into the cloudy, mysterious nature of Luna. They weren't even named. Yeah. Like Lilith and Adrius or, or Adrius' clone or whatever you want to call it never came up. I mean, Luna itself was mentioned, like you said. A couple, like very vaguely though. Yeah. And like, but then you have the inclusion of, of the beginning of the story with Severo and how he enters. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, sold yeah. in a sudden concoction. Like, why? Why was he being sold? Like, he's just like, Abominadrius is not, or Adrius, whatever you want to call him, right? He's not the kind of guy that just like, ah, oh, I'm done with this. Okay, just go sell him. That's not who that character was ever. Right. Even in Dark Age, that didn't seem to be the, who the character was. So is, is there something behind the scenes that- I think there is. We don't even know that led to all this. I think there's a lot more. Are they still in control of Luna? Here's the, Okay, here's the, the galaxy brain theory. <laughs> yeah. When we talk about Lysander's redemption, what if Luna is the place that needs to come down? And what if all the forces, like everyone's forces, like the Rim, the Core, and the Republic all need to merge on uh, Luna because it's, it's, gotta, it's going real bad? 
I don't know. I don't know either. It's that's a, that's a galaxy brain take that probably doesn't make that much sense. Um, just throwing there's throwing darts at the board here with my eyes closed. Uh, anyway, that's it. What's can we do a recap real quick? Go on, sure. recap your awards for me real fast. All right. So my favorite scene was chapter eighty four, Lysander POV, Hangar seventeen B, the death of Atlas, Cassius, and Moonboy. My favorite quote. Was chapter 17, Lysander, Mars Must Fall. It was the speech to the 200. My favorite character in the whole book was Cassius. My favorite POV was Darrow. There you go. Thank you. My favorite scene in the book was Deanna's speech in Lycos in chapter 19, The Rising Dirge. My favorite quote in Lightbringer was Cassius's last words and his honor remains. My favorite character in Lightbringer is Cassius. And my favorite POV in Lightbringer is Lysander, even though just saying that feels weird. (laughs) So that's it, man. We talked Lightbringer. That was our instant reaction. And I know that in the future, we're going to be doing POV studies of this, and I can't wait to record those. And we'll be doing a read-through of Red God whenever it gets released, just like this. Yeah, just like this. And we'll still (laughs) probably do a full POV deep dive on those as well. I mean, we gave a lot of our takes probably right off the bat, but... Like all of Pierce Brown's writing, there's always more to dig into. There's always more subtlety that's like lingering that you can kind of unearth and talk about. So I think that this is one of those books, like Iron Gold, I think too, that has a never ending well of content that you could talk about. And there's always more to pull from, always more to go to. And I'm looking forward to the future and doing that with you. Absolutely. This is it, dude. So until next time, Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper. The Hail Reaper team is Jeremy, Mathar, Janelle, and myself, Philip. All artwork was done by friend of the podcast, Jeff Halsey. Our theme music, Passage, was composed by Jacob Albaum, with production and sound design by Tim Mount. Thanks to our Pinecone cousin, Pierce Brown, for creating the beloved Red Rising Saga. And thanks to all of you for listening, especially our patrons. If you want to learn how to become a Hail Reaper Howler and get additional content, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Reaper. You can follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter at Hail Reaper Pod. And please leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others like you discover the show and is much appreciated. Until next time, Hail Reaper.